Here we go. Right, so this week we're with Dr. Kate Simpson. It's me, Jeff, Alex. Hello, and Kate is with us, joining us right this second. I'm just recording an intro. Uh, So at this point, something went wrong with my microphone and I lost a bunch of it. It's where I say welcome to Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and carbon zero goals, all that stuff. Alex and Jeff are incoming and uh, they join us in a minute. But yeah, I was just telling the listeners, the future listeners, we're following on from last week's episode quite neatly, where it was a research program that involved all aspects of the supply chain across five years. And I mean, that's your area of expertise as well. It's what we've been talking about. Yeah. I hadn't quite expected to pull so much out of it last week. So yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, this is Alex. Alex. Hey. <clears throat> Sorry, I was Thank I was snapping around when uh, when you were you arrived. I was just trying to get to my office. I've just had a the morning has been just full on. So I just literally had a bit of food whilst I was finishing or something and just came upstairs. Uh, thank you for the invite. I don't know about that project that you mentioned last week. Maybe I missed it if it's live already, but I'd be keen to hear about that five year yeah. supply chain project. Well, I mean, it, they listen to the episode. Uh, they talk about it <laughs> rather than rake over them coals. <laughs> but um, it was a five year project looking at four or five case studies where they they track the whole project with up to a year and a half post-occupancy research as well. Oh, here we go. Look at, <laughs> look at Jeff looking all dashing. How many years ago? There's a reality. Much worse. It's false advertising. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I know. I just thought it was better than I was looking for. I was at a, a webinar yesterday and, um, and I <clears throat> didn't want to have the video on because the signal wasn't great. Um, and uh, rather than just having my name appearing, I thought I should find a photo, and that was the best I could do. Anyway, <clears throat> Kate, nice to um, nice to meet you. How are you? Yeah, nice to meet you too. I'm I'm well, thanks, Jeff. I was just catching up on uh, what Dan emailed me last week. Sorry, Dan, I, I see it building for 2050. Um, yeah, that looks like a really good project. Oh man, it's proper and uh, signs for positivity in it. I mean, hopefully, it sounds like Bayesian levelling up have asked for evidence-based research or recommendations, sorry. I mean, evidence-based research. Well, no, I suppose you could... When are they going to get rid of levelling up the term? Sorry, I just, I cannot, I wince every time I hear it, you know, and the fact that it's in a government department name is just abominable, you know. It's so obviously Um, horseshit, and it's been proven to be, it was so obviously horseshit at the time, it meant nothing. And... Everyone who said that got shouted down. And then, lo, it came to pass, or rather, call came to pass, because <laughs> it means nothing. What's the HS2? It's well, but it's it is because it's more applicable. You know, it's 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 the kind of term that just that you, you just gets repeated or can you know can enter the vernacular in lots of different ways, and it's just it's, it's gross. Anyway, sorry. Well, that's it. It's it's loose and flexible enough, so. It sort of sounds all right. Do you think it's meant to reference kind of video games, you know, kind of people who are kind of grown up, you know, people who never really grew up uh, our generation? And uh, it's it feels to me like, you know, like like that that where that's where it's it's its etymology might come from, you know. Oh, 100%. But I mean, things terms 
end up divorced from their origins. Yeah, but it has that whiff about it, which makes people happy, probably. And they're probably trying to get into some sort of 80s computer nostalgia or something. I don't know. Anyway, oh, no, what's I... wrong with that, Jeff? No, Jeff, what's wrong with that? No, I, lo- I like that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I don't like it being co-opted by uh, by the Conservative Party. <laughs> ah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I think it, it's more like, uh, well, as Kate and I were discussing about the, the culture associated with music, like the term to be rinsed out comes from in the jungle raves or hardcore raves, a record being played again and again. So it was always going around like a washing machine. So that tune got rinsed out. And then to get rinsed out has entered the vernacular to a point where my old MD used to use it in meetings with clients, <laughs> like investment businesses. And them fellas, whilst they might have been funding the, the, the big free parties and making a killing on the side, like Paul Staines, Guido Fawkes, he used to be an old raver. Oh, he used to put on the parties. Well, you've yeah. seen Michael Gove and his his dance his nightclub moves. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Kate and I, uh, we were reminiscing over UK Garage, our various uh, appreciations and experiences with it. <laughs> yeah, we were. Cool. So, shall we kick off? So, Kate, thank you for joining us, Dr. Kate Simpson. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah, thank you for the invite. I'm both excited and terrified to be here. Um, my research is centered around housing, the majority of it around housing energy retrofit. Um, I suppose it began. Would you like the backstory or just is that enough? Well, whatever's interesting, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm interested to go back to it, is a peculiar space to. Have found oneself in, given that there was formerly no glamour or interest in the in the area, and you're doing some great work. So yeah, how did you get there? In fact, yeah, I, I like backstory. I think yeah, I, I'm always interested to hear how people ended up where they are. Um, my interest was reusing old buildings, and that came from kind of helping my dad when I was a kid in the house, just doing DIY and. I just loved it. I, I actually wanted to be a joiner and I um, went to the college to see about their construction courses and they said, oh, it looks like you'll do okay in your GCSEs. Why don't you do this professional side of construction, which I often reflect on as a choice. I think I would be better at what I do now if I'd started as a joiner and worked in the trades for a while. But anyway, that's a long way back when I was leaving school. So I was interested in buildings and reuse of buildings, a little bit about design of buildings, went into buildings surveying. Um, and then while I was at Leeds Beckett University, got really interested in energy performance of buildings. And then noticed when I was in practice for a year that what we were doing with old traditional buildings was so different to what we were learning about at Leeds Beckett in relation to energy efficiency and what is possible like the decision-making and the risks, they were just quite opposed to insulation measures in an old country estate where I was working at the time. So I then started with a dissertation in my degree of buildings May and looking at issues relating to energy efficiency in traditional homes and then got more and more interested. And I think that's when it opened up as like research can be a job working with my uh, dissertation supervisor, who was really inspiring. He'd been working for a long time within this space, Malcolm Bell, and I became inspired. And then he, at the end, shared a link 
to a new PhD Center for Doctoral Training in Energy Demand, which sounded really exciting. I could then carry on my research. There wasn't any opportunity in practice in the industry to think about energy efficiency in buildings at this point. So this is way back still in 2010. So I applied thinking I'd never, I had never saw myself as an academic. But then we just had a really interesting conversation in the interview. And they probably thought I was a bit mad, but they offered me a place. And then I, um, in my PhD, well, I looked at indoor air quality in schools, joined a master's, which was part of the programme, and learned a lot about monitoring air quality. In one sense, we were only measuring CO2 as a surrogate. And then um, in my PhD, I uh, was really excited to follow 10, well, 15 altogether householders through a retrofit process. And I was able to speak to them at the decision making point when they were working out what to do and then uh, follow them through the process and visit them just after their installations and then visit them again the winter afterwards. Uh, for some, this was a very squashed monitoring period, depending on when it all happened. It was all kind of by chance that some of them finished in the right amount of time. And yeah, from there, from following householders through the retrofit process, I got well, I guess I became very aware of the challenges with getting this stuff done in reality if you want to do a retrofit in your own home. I realised there's a big problem finding skilled people to do the work. This is still a problem. Um, but then went on to interview builders, worked in a college for a while, looking at construction training. And yeah, I think the challenge with that is that we're just training in colleges to meet the building regulations. And if the building regulations are saying that energy efficiency is it's important, but we're not where we could be with it. Then why would colleges teach um, in retrofit and upgrading buildings? So that's a little bit of <laughs> a short intro. And then I, I suppose, yeah, I've then gone on to look at decision making and retrofit and how we use data in that and householder experiences with digital technology. The project I'm working on at the moment, we are looking at well-being technology in the home and working in shelter housing schemes. And I've never worked in shelter housing before, and that's been an eye-opener in many ways. And in relation to our housing situation in the UK and the way that we're treating all the people and the amount of people with multiple needs that are housed within one building and everything that comes together with that. But also during the, the energy crisis, we're hearing a lot about the concerns of older people and budgeting their energy mm -hmm. use. And they're quite fortunate because they're living in all flats so they're probably not the most at risk but yeah, yeah. I've been... what, what, what do you mean by well-being by the way can you how do you define well-being that's a really good question Jeff um so we have been working in partnership with a housing provider and a technology provider and the technology uh provider that are involved they are installing these digital well-being devices which uh, fundamentally replace the old pull cords in homes but they do much more than that so they would originally have been an emergency call uh, system, and now they can also interact with uh, other people that are living in the same scheme. They can uh, have an informal chat with the housing manager who used to be their warden. Um, and they're looking, the technology designer are looking at where to take this next. Does it go further and link up with like Internet of Things technologies and monitoring the environment of the home? 
what does it remain as an emergency call system and, and the housing provider are interested in what older residents would like to see and for, as researchers we're also interested in how that system enters their home at the same time as smart meters and digital storage heaters and uh smartphones all these digital technologies entering the home and often without the planning and decision making of the old person as well so it's been a really interesting project to look at it from their perspective yeah all these changes are happening within homes um and who's making the decision it's often younger people or people quite far from the lived situation of of these people Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that you're mentioning the use of an intercom system that brings up those terrible IOT visions or just the the interconnected visions of like a call center worker in the global south being the person at the end of the line for an old person in this country. So much scope for abuse, but so much scope for it to work well as well. I was particularly intrigued by, we're speaking with Oya Energy, who they have a hybrid heating system, heat pump with gas and they can program their system to use whatever fuel is cheapest to ensure that the home is heated to an adequate degree at the lowest possible cost, which isn't efficient. There's a carbon cost potentially in that, but uh, it is a, man, it feels like a very necessary measure, that sort of technology. So can we go back to like, your PhD looking into the the householder experience of retrofit? I ask this because, like, personally, I'm about to embark on this project. And we were just in the chat before you joined talking about Alex and I trying to retrofit our homes. I'm starting with Windows because uh, there is an opportunity. And Alex is talking about MVHR. And Jeff is counseling all sorts of caution in the meantime. And when we're not talk against about- MVHR, just, just that it can be, you have to be, you, you'll know what you're getting into if you're talking about a centralized system because retrofitting ductwork can be yeah. uh yeah. no very, it can be sensible. done but but it, but it's not it's not it's it's not something that you just you, you know you just you, you yeah you don't just assume that it's going to be uh, a cakewalk you know it may not even I, be possible you know can't I just have an update like on my phone just update a big <laughs> button to update my house that'd be great <laughs> well it often feels like it's spoken of in those terms where we talk about remediating problems around fuel poverty and with carbon consumption and reducing energy uh use we talk about it in very abstract terms without ever contemplating the the practical reality and one of the things that we've spoken about with all sorts of people is you install all this technology and then someone's got to use it so last week lots of the oh enough householders so a statistically significant number of householders were complaining about the steps they'd have to take and the change in behavior associated with hot water use I mean, when uh, Kate and I caught up the other week, she was talking about, oh, we got onto the subject of controls there and old people, older people. And it Mm. doesn't have to, they don't have to be old and infirm. I mean, you just have to be, really, you have to be in your 40s to be beginning to struggle with (laughs) interfaces. I mean, it could be uh, in terms of eyesight, but, you know, that's when these sorts of things begin to, to take hold. It could be a lack of digital competence, but all too often, People like us talk about it in abstract terms. Actually, I say us, not me and Alex, because we do all this, this human people-based research. We're very special boys, and we are very uh, interested in all this sort of stuff. But 
in fact, do you want to tell us about your? Do you want to tell us a bit about your PhD and what mm-hmm. you've done since, with like the human part, the householder experience? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll start with the householder experience for my PhD because it's a little bit different to what I'm doing now, but there's still many similar themes. So I think one thing that struck me in my PhD and more recent research that I've done around the householder decision-making process of what to do with retrofit, there's just so much information out there and it's really confusing to then apply that to your own home with all its quirks and particular needs and and think about what could work within your own home and and uh, just over a year ago we held some kind of virtual sessions with householders who were really motivated to undertake retrofit had the financial capability to undertake retrofit had the interest to go out and look for their own information but still found it so difficult and really just wanted somebody who lived nearby to come and tell them what to do and for that level of service and Mm. this was one thing that during my PhD one of my PhD supervisors uh, Victoria Haynes she developed a bunch of personas for different levels of service in relation to retrofit. So some people at one end might be really enthusiastic and want to find their own information and and, and maybe undertake some of the work as a DIY project. At the other end, there's people that just want to pay somebody to do everything and not have to think about it and maybe even arrange for them to move into a hotel or another place for a short period of time. And I think that's the level we need to be getting to in relation to a retrofit service. And I, I think one of the challenges with that is that with any service comes a cost. Um, so we need to find a way that the lower income groups who perhaps are more, have a more urgent need for retrofit because of the energy crisis, and that can then lead to a health crisis if they're not heating their home adequately, they need quite an urgent service right now to upgrade the energy efficiency and the the heating system and whatever they need specific to their home. But that can really only be decided with a survey of the home, with somebody that's expert within retrofit and has knowledge of all the different systems and how they interact with each other. And we're quite far from that point. There's some good moves going on at the moment with retrofit coordinator training and past 2035 standard but we're still a long way from having somebody in every part of the UK to offer advice to householders and I think that's one of the major challenges even if you're motivated if you can't find somebody to do the work and you can't gain trust in the options then why would you bother there's a really nice quote actually well it's not nice but there's a good quote from my PhD is like you, you're living in your house, you have very busy lives, retrofit is really disruptive, expensive. Why would you bother if you can continue? Um, so on the one end, there's people that are able to afford their energy bills and don't need to think about it. And, um, well, that's it. Like we outsource the cost of carbon. It doesn't really matter. Um, so like to that point, we've seen massive moves in Ireland, haven't we, Jeff? where they try to address that with the one-stop shop system. Yeah. And where's that up to? Your your ear to the ground. It's struggling. Um, the, 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 there are just difficulties getting 
there's tea there's going to be growing pains with this you know and that creates real difficulties for government because of course trying to have a commitment in place and a plan for a longer term policy and not to be steered off course by short term problems that's really difficult because there there's so there's been press coverage on uh, uh, on the very low numbers of of projects that have come through the one stop shop so far, so far, um, and that apply that 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 brings pressure. And there are a lot of complaints from the industry about the administrative burden required now uh, to get projects through. And there's co- complaints from punters about the difficulty they're finding getting one stop shops to service them because the, the one stop shops that uh, that that are in the market and have been approved now um, have been uh, initially probably trying to focus on the easier jobs so if you're not, if you don't if you're not in the right area of the country or if you're not uh, yeah. the, you know a simple kind of house type or whatever you're going to be lower priority for them you know so so all those things need to be kind of thought through but it's it's getting there the key for me with it is that there is this longer term political engagement i still think that one thing where we're closer to in ireland but i think one thing that we're missing generally with these things is um just to to bring it back to what kate was talking about in terms of the confusion there is you kind of want one single source of of uh, of information um that you know a trusted brand like a government uh brand well, government as well trust but you know so, some sort of um uh body that people will 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 have faith in um to give consistent advice and to be able to plan out what you know so so that you know that whatever is right for you and your building and the circumstances you're in there'll be a way you know and past 2035 obviously tries to kind of identify that but um you know that that it, i don't know how you achieve that i just don't know how it's possible when you consider uh political meddling when you consider in- industry lobbying when you consider all of these uh all of these issues how you would you know how you achieve I, that because i don't i think in the absence of that i think i think you're on a hiding to nothing you know but you got the you got a change in landscape as well where people learn things technologies change and shift where once they are unviable suddenly they become eminently viable and you can crack on with them right all the more reason why you want this one source so that, so that so that so that research is part of that and you have the ability to 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 centrally you know um update the information and and uh and uh just just accept that you don't always have all of the answers now um but give people current you know consistent advice on 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 what the best options are at the moment you know but the issue the issue jeff is there are too many unknowns like how can you give uh, the best advice when the advice is often changing quite quickly. I'm not saying that we, I know there are lots of solutions already out there. It, it kind of but- depends, you know, um, when you, when you go deeper into deep retrofit and you got, you go into the kind of enterfitty kind of space and stuff like that, you know, we, we have a, we have a much better handle, I think. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, I'm not being interviewed here. It's Kate, you know, um, uh, but, uh, and I don't know what your view on this would be, Kate, but I, I think the, where the issues arise more is when you're sailing closer to the wind, like when you've got, uh, a building uh, where you're trying to find whether for budgetary reasons or because you've got a, a, a hard to treat existing building where you've got to uh, to insulate in a particular way, for instance, and you you may have a, you know uh, condensation risk issues or, or whatever it might be. Those are the ones I think where where it becomes trickier. And and, and the stuff on performance gap, for instance, that's been coming out in in the press recently as well. Again, you know, like it's depressing hearing some of those stories because we kind of know the answers to these things we have done for a long time. We know how to, because it's not as if there haven't been lots of uh, academics studying uh, measures in buildings for, for decades, because that, that has been the case, you know? Um, 
Sorry, Casey. You, uh, you, you sort of, you know, elbow your way in and throw us aside. Oh, okay? I'm learning a lot and I'm making notes. I've got questions lined up for you, James. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's two main things. Could I go back to the one-stop shops? Because uh, is that the project Please that's in do. collaboration yeah. with France and the Netherlands uh, trial and one-stop shop? No. Sorry, the reason I asked, I went to a talk in Delft. There was a, a preparing for the Renovation Wave conference in Delft in October, which was great because there was people from all over Europe and further afield all talking about the challenge of retrofit and how we make it happen. And I went to one talk on one-stop shops and uh, just realised how different the model of the one-stop shop can be. I see it as a kind of magical place that everybody goes to get the information and uh, the assurance that they need. But it depends who's involved and how it's run. And there was really good ideas in that session about how to give people trust by having local bodies and local builders and you know, the local councils involved. involved. But um, yeah, I'd be interested to know more about how it's playing out in Ireland, if there is a one model of a one-stop shop or if there's multiple options. I mean, there's, it's open to, you know, there's a range of different kinds of companies that have come one-stop shops and it's open to community-based organizations as well for instance to to become one-stop shops um um and a few of them would be like one of them is a uh, an insulation manufacturer core um uh who have a good good track record good a lot of experience doing um retro uh retrofits sort of deep retrofits through grant funding schemes then you've got utilities um who've got obligations on them uh we had um it's probably not dissimilar to to eco in some ways in the UK. Uh, it, not, I don't mean in, her, in terms of how it's delivered. I should say. Um, I just mean in terms of the, the fact that there's a legally binding obligation uh, uh, on all of the energy utilities in Ireland and uh, the uh, the oil industry. Uh, uh, to, they've they've got legally binding targets to meet in terms of of uh, uh, of uh, achieving gaps in our, our national energy efficiency action plan for instance and they can they can do that uh you know uh, one 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 I suppose of doing that is getting these measures done themselves or or buying the credits you know um so um and there's it's controlled by the sustainable energy authority of Ireland um and uh they've been issuing grants in this area for a long long time um with kind of varying degrees of success, I suppose. Um, and um, they have uh, a, a, a pretty pretty tight vetting process, I suppose, I suppose for the one-stop shops um, uh, in terms of how, how they got onto the system in the first place. And they're looking for... I have to to read up on this more because when I looked for the for, for, for the stuff I'd heard about with them uh, from uh, from somebody in government, um, uh, and when I looked through the documentation, I couldn't find as much as I, as I was looking for because there was talk about... Um, guarantees and warranties and stuff on 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 uh, on on at least the materials used if not the works themselves you know um and on on some kind of stress test some to, to ensure ensure that the companies that are involved you know um will be capable of doing the works you know to a good standard um but yeah it's it, i've i've got to get closer to it frankly i'm not i'm not as up on it as i should be you know sounds really valuable when when i was um interviewing builders after my PhD to find out, well, why aren't they scaling up within this space? So it was really enlightening to, for them, it's a risk. We were looking at like their capabilities, opportunities, motivations, and it is a huge risk to get involved in a space which you're a little bit nervous about. And especially if you've seen poor quality installations due to short-lived yeah. funding streams and 
there's a reputation um, risk as well. It, it has to, to have that long term efficiency. Exactly. Sorry for cutting you off. Uh, it, it, look, it has to have that long-term commitment. Um, and that was one of the complaints um, that the retrofit industry in Ireland has had for years, in that it was always a uh, a seasonal industry because you, you, because the SEAI would have an annual budget. Um, you know, grants might uh, be announced in the spring. They might be awarded, I don't know, uh, March, April, June, in some cases, um, and the works have to be completed by you know August, September. Um, uh, so you had um, uh, the contractors or winning works having to buy in labour um, and rush the works through, um, and uh, there was just no certainty in it. You know how how can you plan and to invest as a, as a business with, with that model? So they have uh, the longer term political commitment, and they have multi annual uh, budgets now. I gather so. Um, you know uh, they've been trying to 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 to, to address that, uh, but yeah, it's. So, so what did some, uh, the contractors tell you they wanted, Kate, when you were speaking with him? Yeah, I I think there was a general feeling that if energy efficiency and retrofit was a space to get involved in, then there should be free training available because if for them to train, it's losing a day of work as well as paying for training. Um, so at least free training if it's something that needs to happen in the UK I guess they might benefit business-wise in the future by upskilling but if they're already making enough and I think you've covered this in previous shows if they're already making enough money and they have a good business and you know they're delivering what their customers want or what the majority of their customers want because it's still relatively niche and maybe it's quite different this year because people are more aware now of energy efficiency and energy prices it's been in the news more than ever so it might be quite different now, but up until this year, um, it was such a niche area to get involved in. But yeah, there, there was really good reasons for not. And what came across really strongly from, so I interviewed builders within my project, and then I then merged the data with another couple of researchers who've also been interested to interview builders. So we ended up with still a relatively small sample, but around 31 builders that we spoke to. And what came across through all of the interviews was the, the desire to do a good job and uh, meet the customer demands and satisfy them and provide cost-effective work. And, and if if they couldn't guarantee that, then they might just not get involved and give it to somebody else and let somebody else do it. And, you know, we probably had a fairly biased sample of good builders who are willing to come and talk about their work. Um, but yeah, some of them were involved and had looked at energy efficiency training. Some of them, it was off their radar and um, not, they hadn't even thought about involved, so it was mixed. Yeah, this is something that comes up again and again. Like the small to medium-sized contractors, the, these players, they live and die by their reputations. But it's so we're going to be having a conversation about the industrial the industrialization of retrofit over the coming weeks with a couple of people, like different folk within the sector, because I think it's a, a theme that needs to be addressed. You know, from uh, strategies to MMC to train training. I mean, everything, uh, communications to the public, it all needs to be industrialized. However, the moment you get into industrialization, then you begin to reduce the quality. You often reduce the quality because if you consider house building, a local house builder, like a small scale house builder in your local area, they live and die by their reputation. Wimpy, on the other hand, they don't really seem to care about delivering quality because they don't have to. 
because the motivations at that level are completely different. Like it's been really interesting. So retrofit training, for instance, like you can see retrofit Academy doing great work, but that work is monetized and gate kept by that cost. You've got other bodies like best who are trying to do something similar. In fact, you've got loads of people doing loads of things, but it's all relatively different. People are being taught to test a lot of the time. But so taught to the regulations rather than to resolve the crisis and further ongoing crisis that are going to emerge. Yeah, I'll go back a step. But yeah, taught to the regulations, not that we ever test. Oh, well, maybe we do with new houses, but we rarely test if they've met the, the standard. But yeah, I'd like to go back actually to think about that. So one motivation when we were interviewing builders, we included micro enterprise builders as our primary sample. I think 28 of them, I can't quite remember, the number, but they're mainly micro enterprise. So with seven employees or less, and that makes up 77% of the construction sector. So if we're thinking about upskilling the sector, that's you know rolling out information and training to these tiny businesses. And it, the risk is much higher because they're often working in a local area. They know people personally. They're also employing children often or you know they're adult children (laughs) and working with relatives and friends it's such a tight interconnected network often not always and I think it can be quite different in cities as well there's also um, people coming into the country and working in construction but the people that we interviewed were mainly in these quite tight-knit networks Um, and I I, yeah I'd like to talk about industrialization a little bit um, because I think I'm also on a, a steering committee for an offsite housing uh, project. And I think there's often this idea that if we industrialize everything and, uh, and everything goes to you know, more of a, a digital automated way that we can do things better and the quality will be better and things will happen quicker. There's less room for human error. But when we're working with existing buildings, like there's so many works and things to work around and builders are really expert at problem solving on site working with existing buildings and there's going to be huge challenges to industrialize that and I'm I'm not saying there isn't a role I think you know energy sprung are quite exciting I also went to the net zero factory in the Netherlands and they're quite exciting um, producing energy units off-site so it's less disruption for the household to bring those in so I think there's opportunity but I don't think that's going to be the only way i think there's there's a mix and we need everything we need to try out all of the solutions and there'll be different house types and different tiny types where some things like industrialization work but it's not going to be the the ultimate solution for all homes i don't think i think i I 100 agree but i think the, the problem is is that we seem to have two camps it's either it should all be bespoke or it should all be uh machine driven but it's not the case there are there is there is an intrinsic need to have the the humans and the machines working together. It's not about let's just build offsite the entire retrofit system that encapsulates the house because we know it's never going to work. You can't industrialize that. But there are certainly aspects that you could use technology to improve the retrofit, but it's still going to have to have a, a very strong human presence. So that that skill is as important. But so there's a need to learn how to do things. I suppose with your gut instinct and your expertise and know when to pull in the technology and all the other supporting mechanisms 
to make the, the project a success. It's not one or the other, it's two the two together, and we should stop looking at them as separate things. Well, this is a fundamental problem with retrofit in how people are appreciating it. And uh, in fact, this is something Kate and I were talking about last week. It's how we got onto uh, how UK Garage was inculcated. Like, <laughs> this is your dissertation. So Jeff and I were at uni together, and Jeff did his dissertation on uh, applying. Do we have to talk about this? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I want to, because like, I think there's something like interesting it. in it. Oh, man, it's like, it's well pretentious, but it ain't wrong. Like, it was about taking some of the, the theory of Deleuze and Guattari, uh, the Mille Plateau. These are obscure French philosophers, yeah. I mean, they're not that obscure. Very, very, um, but I mean, they're going to be obscure in the construction trade. But like, yeah, <laughs> they were they were in a new wave. I think they were part of like, uh, they might have come out of Marxist thought. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. They, <laughs> the way Jeff applied it to his dissertation was that, and this is what where it is analogous to construction. Often the way we think about the music industry, rock family trees, there is a like a linear approach, a linear but branching approach to how one goes about constructing a building. But actually, the way it actually works is a lot more rhizomic in nature. So rather than it being a tree, it's more like a tumbleweed where there is no beginning, there is no end, and all these things, uh, they overlap and get tangled because of the circumstances in which they've developed. I'm just and waiting for you to say that, like. that I latched onto it because rhizomes are uh, are, are uh, how potatoes grow, uh, <laughs> given that I'm Irish, you know. Missed opportunity oh, there, Dan. Yeah, yeah no, I, di- I didn't actually know that. But I think... <laughs> Like that's the thing. So going from this this pretentious uh, philosophy to construction, like the longer we think about construction as a linear process with regard to retrofit, the more we're on a hide into nothing, because it ain't that. Like there are loads of solutions. There are loads that are applicable. And even so, we've spoken to few people trying to set up retrofit outfits where they're wanting to industrialize the process on a small scale. So look at housing typologies in an area and apply uh, the methodologies and strategies that they've developed to a row of terraced houses. However, even though the terraced houses are the same in construction, the circumstances are different at one end of the street than they are from the other. And, and they, may, be, the they may have been only the same when they were built. You know, who knows what people have exactly. done to them since. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I haven't really thought of how to apply Deleuze and Guattari in the context of retrofit. Um, but they're funny as 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 kind of philosophers go. Uh, and I probably latched onto them partly for that reason. And they had this idea, essentially, that the universe is, is inherently chaotic and fluxist, and uh, that people try to articulate things, businesses being a good case in point, I suppose, into what um, they were they were kind of using, I think the metaphors that they use were kind of quite jokey as well at times you yeah, know not the uh, this, stuff not this episode oh no they, they describe their books as being uh like uh like records that you, you uh, not meant to be read in a linear fashion either that you just you put the needle down wherever you want to you know and had all these silly ideas uh their theory was 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 interesting because they were they're basically trying to say that um as much as businesses for instance and they didn't talk directly about business or anything like that um uh you know might try to articulate things into a simple kind of you know uh hierarchical or arboreal structures that they call it that's not really how things work and uh you know it's ultimately (laughs) (laughs) is Uh, jeff slowing down for everyone else that kind of thinking am i Yeah. yeah 
Sorry. Yeah, you just you, there was an elongated metal Mickey bit where you said it's ultimately chaotic. So it's, it's not like a linear tree structure. Structure is chaos. Yeah, exactly. And I just don't know how um, how applicable how how practical it is to apply that thinking in this industry. Maybe, maybe. I mean, it, it's it's useful in terms of understanding when you're dealing with an, an industry comprised of uh, you know, as Kate was talking about, you know, where you, all of these like these small builders, for instance, you know, how you uh, you come up with a system that works that finds ways of engaging with them. Um, uh you know that versus the 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 big factory kind of prefabricated retrofit approach uh yeah it's tricky you know um, oh. yeah i think that's one reason i like the one-stop shop idea that that could be a hub for builders to go and exchange knowledge as well as find out about opportunities with work in my ideal vision of that um, there has been some really interesting work in Bristol uh, with the Green Register bringing together training that was through uh, Future Proof that the Centre for Sustainable Energy were leading. I, I used to work at Centre for Sustainable Energy after my um, PhD and their research team. I'm really inspired by the work that they do. But this work with builders, the Green Register, they um, set up a, a kind of network of builders. So they all talk to each other on the same WhatsApp chat and ask each other questions and uh but that's really important because naturally they find out and we all learn from each other constantly and if you're entering a new space you need that network of people to bounce ideas off and sort of sense check and would you do this way or this way and i think that's a really nice example of a bottom-up way of um upskilling builders within one geographical area to create that network one question I had as well is the from your research, how impactful or how how did the actual end client, so the the homeowners, how did they impact the choice of the work? Because one of the things that I'm I believe in is that obviously the clients themselves have preconceptions of what retrofit means, or in fact don't even know anything about it, so will not ask about it. And often it comes down to price, not the quality or anything like that. It's always about that. So how you know, detrimental, I suppose, in a sense, or not, or, you know, how helpful are, are the clients in helping support the retrofit effort? I think they're essential, really. But I, a couple of examples came to mind just then. Um, I've, 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 some of my participants have been um, curious about technologies which are not commonly available in the market. Uh, so one um, householder, he wanted to install a combined heat and power unit. He later wanted to connect it up to a solar thermal um, water heater, um, but he couldn't find anybody in the area to do the work. So he went with his trusted um, heating engineer and what he recommended and went with a gas boiler instead. So I, I think yeah. it's partly cost, but I think I think it's also trust in the technology that the person installing the technology knows how to install it. I think if at that point he'd have found somebody to to install what he wanted, that would have been ideal, but he couldn't. So. See, the um, bit that seems to be uh, overlooked at lots of points is the the paramount importance of the retrofit coordinator. Like the person who is able to look at what the assessor might have done and make the work actually happen. Like I've been a producer in all sorts of capacities in my time. And the producer is often overlooked because you're the person who keeps all the people happy and makes the thing keep happening to the schedule and makes makes sure it's done to the right quality. What quality means 
can be different in different circumstances, though. And that's where you hit the big problem with retrofit. You know, if so, I don't know if you've seen, but like we uh, we've been uh, observing a lot more posting on LinkedIn about terrible quality retrofit. They seem to have resulted in some very engaged threads of really appalling work. Like you got to wonder, like how's that? How's anyone allowed that to happen? Like the person who was in charge of overseeing that job, coordinating it. How did they let the the workers move on? And how do you teach people like up front when you're putting them in those positions what good actually looks like? I mean, you think they know, but I don't know. I think this is really important. There are a high number of poor quality retrofit installations, and we we're not revisiting retrofits as standard see what the quality is a year on five years on 10 years on and that's what we need to be doing i just i was in a big meeting this morning actually about a 10-year revisit project from the retrofit for the future and i think if if uh data from that can be shared that'd be some really useful insights that the whole sector can then learn from but we really need that to be tied into every retrofit on every home but you know we're, we're checking that things work and that they're not causing problems for the house and for the householder. I mean, this is something we're trying to find a way to get it baked into the low energy building database. But it ain't well, they have loads easy. of retrofit for the future projects, loads of them in there um, from, from back in the day as well. So it would be some of them with some post-occupancy data. But um, but there was a mad rush to to get data added on the projects when the LE, when that database was built, you know, 2010 or whenever, and because they had a requirement to 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 share this information, um, I guess, to whatever the grants were conditional on that. So, yeah, that should be built upon. But going back to the earlier point, how do we train coordinators to know what they should be coordinating? Um, in fact, did you get to speak to many people who were fulfilling that role even if it wasn't like the same nomenclature uh, so with my phd it was quite a small sample but there was an architect coordinating some of the retrofits and he coordinated previous retrofits that was kind of his speciality um so that was really fortunate for the householders that had him involved um it wasn't an option for every house to have that kind of role involved yeah. often they would be going straight to an installer and they'd be looking at individual measures that were funded at first they were looking at the green deal at that point it was a little while ago now for that project and some of them are looking at the eco scheme so yeah but it's quite a lot of responsibility to take on as as the architect or the retrofit coordinator and i think again if we were evaluating retrofit projects and feeding back information that could then become a resource that we then use to teach for the retro and i think that does happen within the retrofit coordinator the retrofit academy but it, it's closed at the moment we can't access that and that might be a good step forward maybe the low energy building database could be expanded to include more current work so we can just keep learning because i'm learning all the time retrofit is complex and going back to jeff's work on chaos like it is chaotic there's a lot to coordinate there's a lot to know there's a lot that can go wrong so without revisiting and checking and learning um well one thing we could escalate that's yeah well that's it like one thing that alex and i advise our clients all the time getting things wrong is part of the process you can't get things right unless you know how to get them right that's one of the key lessons and because clients don't like it 
like when you present something to them and they say it's wrong we 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 sow that seed from the very start of a project like good i'm glad you hate it <laughs> now we know what you actually want it's a bit more serious when you're talking about invasive yeah, measures care, i'd say careful home. with how that message is 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 uh is made is 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 shared dan because um there's a lot of contractors who seem to be very good at, at getting things wrong you know, <laughs> and maybe not learning the lessons from it you know and isn't it lovely for them to turn around to their clients and say well getting things wrong that's part of the process <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah well perhaps we need to be thinking on a meta level rather than uh specifics yeah, yeah. I, I mean i think the, the thing is with, with a lot of this stuff now we we, we know a lot of uh, we, we actually know a lot of what the measures will be and i dare say there's a lot of people in the industry um who if you even if you're looking at a meta level and looking at uh buildings in different different building typologies in different areas um and different tenures of occupancy and so on you'd you'd have a very good handle on the kinds of measures that you think are likely to be appropriate uh in for you know in, in in different areas um there's no question there's still learning to be done um i wouldn't over egg that you know um i i think i think it, uh, working out how to deliver the damn thing is is the challenge and i and as i say how to for me one of the biggest questions of all is is how to get through to how could to connect to these local trusted builders for instance you know um who are very very difficult to access and uh and 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 uh, and to to win over you know um i'm not i don't know what the answers are there katra may be alluded to it in her column in the in the the latest issue of our magazine um because uh, she's done great research in, in in that area but that for me feels like it should be an area of serious focus you know yeah yeah i'm i'm a fan of Tashkin's work actually that's in the install of power um inspired some of my work with builders as well so one idea that came from a builder was to, if every builder's merchant and every place that they went for their work had information about opportunities with retrofit and retrofit training, and that was um, supported and endorsed by local colleges, local firms, local bodies or their industry trade bodies, that would be a big step. And then it, it's getting the information to them and it's helping them see that the industry is on board with this and it's a way to go. Whereas at the moment, there's just a complete lack of information and, and incentive for them to get involved. It feels to me like it should all be branded. Like every time you pass a, a house uh, where there's um, a retrofit project going on, and you know you see the, the 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 builder's signage or whatever you know there should be like a bloody a brand and a qr code or whatever to to go to for a, for you know for a, a singular information source on on you know like i don't know uh, you know uh, for 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 other punters for other builders or whatever you know to 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 all become part of this this massive sinister retrofit cult you know um, that's a really good idea like the green open homes website so you walk past a retrofit in action and you can see what's happening and who's involved and if you wanted to do that same thing that you could call up the people involved to do it on your own house yeah, yeah i mean exactly to me we do that yeah <laughs> jeff we, we've spoken about this before well actually with dan as well but i keep banging on about the fact that we need to use the the measures of the the big gigantic companies that just pile obviously millions and millions into advertising. I was just talking to a, a group of agencies this morning and I was saying that the one of the reasons for the success of TikTok was just that they spent more money on advertising than anyone else. And one of the things that is missing, obviously, from Dan and my perspective, we know that communication is really important. 
And it's actually another thing that is not that accessible to companies that know how to do a good job. It's not because you do a good job that you know how to talk talk about it properly. And that is also where I believe there needs to be a lot of support, not just the signage. I agree with that 100%. But there also needs to be resources on how to you know, easily build your website, how to communicate on a website purposefully, how to write content that is going to uh, engage or co- create the trust that you need uh, with the, the local builder or the local organization or whatever it is and that is really important and that is not done enough so you've often got people who've got that sort of confidence to talk and know how to do it and they'll go out there and they might be absolutely terrible and they'll be talking and getting the job whereas the other one who's a bit meeker but actually excellent is not going to get the work and that's where we need to find a a solution to basically give them a leg up beyond uh, the others like like a matchmaking between tech people and builders so they get together because they, they're often self-employed and have similar interests in uh freedom i think and working for themselves so maybe they that could be a really nice partnership so i don't know of any builders who are currently working with um the tech sector but i'm sure some are i'm sure some have well, involved in making their own websites well this is something that it does make a big difference like retrofit projects uh, all right, so we've been working with Best on a bit of research with them about their low carbon learning uh, program, and one of the things that came out of that was it was a multidiscipline, or it was open to a multidisciplinary audience. It could be anyone um, within reason, and it meant that you had joiners on the same course as architects, and they don't necessarily often uh, meet one another. And they found everyone came back from those circumstances saying that it was a brilliant experience because I got to see uh, someone else. I got to meet other players within the the industry on a a much more equal footing. It was a much more leveling experience because, you know, the the architects struggling with taping, much to the mirth of the joiners, like it, it humanizes all these people who may exist in silos and ivory towers. Yeah, that um, does sound really good. I should read it more on their project because the industry is very hierarchical. And I think from interviewing builders, there's often a lack of trust for standards and, and designs that they feel have been put together by people that don't work with buildings. And yeah. traditionally, architects, historically, first trained as stonemasons and then mm. went on to design buildings and or worked as clerk of works very much connected to the site and then went on to design buildings and I think there is a disconnect and um, we were just talking in a, a paper group yesterday about the move from prescriptive specifications to performance-based so in prescriptive you're saying exactly what materials and products need to be used and in performance-based it's what the outcome will be and I think that's partly to like hand over responsibility. And you know, if you if you're not confident in what materials are needed, then you can leave that to the installer, but then they take the risk. Mm. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, see the, the problem there is the way the responsibility is shared because there isn't because it, the designer has the longest term of responsibility according to their uh, liability insurance. So it's better for everyone to work with the designer specification in those terms than it is for the constructing, the the delivery agent to take responsibility for it. Yeah, I think yeah. this feeds into, sorry, go ahead. 
that, yeah, responsibility and liability is like the risk factor, isn't it? And I think that's partly why it's so difficult to go back and evaluate builds because then who puts it right if there is a problem and who does that work? And we, we've been trying to access data from the building user survey database and the team have been very helpful, but you you would need permission from the people involved in the build and the clients involved to access that data. And yeah. So do you know anyone in financial institutions? Like, do you ever rub shoulders? I ask because one of the drums that Jeff's been banging is about, which he almost got away in Ireland, but it's like centralized insurance back guarantee for retrofit to a certain standard. This is a, a, a way you can potentially industrialize the process without the negative consequences of industrialization. Like it almost happened in Ireland and then it, fell to pieces because of a personnel change. But if you institute something like that, then the whole landscape is changed. But you've taken out one of the big barriers to entry. Do you know anyone like that? It's a good question. I, I've had conversations with colleagues about the finance side, but I'm it's not an area of research that I've been involved in. Although recently we, we were, t- wouldn't it be great if, there is a fund available, like a liability risk fund for installers who were working on retrofits and going into unfamiliar territory. If if there is something to support them as a backup, and it it could almost be encouraged to you know learn, think of it a go. And if the householders were aware, like this is their first job, so we're going to be coming back and checking things. And then if something does go wrong, don't worry, we've got this fund to go and put it right. That could really help. And that could help take a little bit of pressure off, off builders and um, yeah. alleviate yeah. the risk. I mean, well, you need, um, sorry, you Jeff, need Jeff, Jeff, I'm not sorry. Uh, I'm cutting you off. Just before we move on, if anyone listening knows anyone who can help, holler at us, ZAP at EIUX.agency, or find Jeff at Passive S Plus or Noises Up on LinkedIn or whatever, because this is a mad important thing that something needs to be done to make it happen. And okay, we're talking are- to people. There, there are companies out there uh, offering insurance-backed guarantees for retrofit measures, you know, already in the UK. And that was part of the basis for what we we're looking at, which is what you want. Is, the thing with insurance, there's a there's a Tom Waits song lyric as well. That you have to be, what is it again? The large print giveth and the small print taketh away, you know, so you have to be very careful of that. Um, and um, <laughs> uh, insur- insurance as an industry, you know, can be very conservative you can understand why um you want to be certain and there can, that can make it difficult to get innovative kind of sustainable building approaches through um at times you want them to be conservative in a way but you want them to be evidence-based and, and to have a have a, a proper grasp of building physics and so on to uh and of of the evidence of 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 past performance of buildings past building failures and so on and in creating these policies but the idea was that you have a latent defect insurance backed guarantee which uh would 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 pay the full cost of of repair or replacement in in the event of uh of failure arising from defective materials workmanship or design irrespective of whether you could prove which of the three was at fault or irrespective of um, whether the, the the party that was at fault was still trading or not, and it's sort of ten to fifteen year kind of protection that 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 kind of thing was what we were looking at. But yeah, there's there is scope for it. It it's um, it goes hand in hand with and the cost of insurance, um, you know, log- logically uh, would be cheaper 
if you can prove that the risk is lower. So um, you kind of need to do it in concert with really good analysis of of uh, of you know the, the buildings that you're talking about and of the measure, the kinds of measures that you're talking about and and, uh, and 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 how they're actually performing. And we are fortunate in this space to have this wonderful um, kind of subculture of Anuraki kind of building physicists who are going around sticking probes in buildings and monitoring them and 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 interrogating the data and sharing it in a kind of in, you know uh, with their peers and 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 accumulating amazing knowledge and insights. So you know that needs to be built upon. It's 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 uh, there's there is the the basis of something. Special spectacular there if, if it could be if the cats could be herded you know um, i agree yeah i'm really inspired by the eco home lab in manchester that came out of carbon co-op there's some really good data and knowledge within that group i wonder if there's an opportunity for builders to then share some of that on their websites to say look we're involved in this project here is the performance data and for them to make that link that could be really nice and just going back to an earlier point i made i think you asked about the retrofit coordination and we've talked a little bit about builders doing things for the first time i have some of my case studies have allowed learning on the job like householders have been happy for builders to be learning on the job if they know that's the case and they feel like i mean this is quite a motivated householder that's in mind actually for this one case but they were keen that it was a learning opportunity for the, for the local builders and for the local sector. And there was others involved in learning from their builder themselves and developing their own knowledge. And I think that some householders will be willing to take risk with builders and and, and learn as they go if it if it's open and, and that's explained from the start. Mm. Oh, there's something reassuring about I mean, you know, if you have... I, you know, I always get wary when you find a, a builder or a, a, a manufacturer or whatever who is very reluctant to share detailed information about what they're doing. You know, um, it happens occasionally. It's rare for us, but um, there's a there's a generosity of spirit, I think, in the low energy building kind of community. So you'll find that, you know, like with our projects that we publish in the magazine, for instance, the architects usually are are happy to share we publish galleries of, of construction details um on on the buildings you know that that's really really valuable information so so we're kind of grateful for that but you will occasionally find people who are very guarded um and i wonder whether some in some cases i think it's because you've got you know i think of bigger builders who think they've got some magic secret um uh, when when you actually look at what they've done it's it's grand but it's it's nothing particularly novel or maybe they're not that confident <laughs> um and and uh, and they don't want people uh probing around uh in uh in 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 uh in their questionable work you know yeah yeah i get it you have to be quite brave i guess to share information um but if we could move towards uh, an industry that facilitates and encourages that that, that could be a good thing um, what's the gallery yeah. of construction details? Is that the red book or something else? No, no. Yeah, we, we're lousy at promoting this, um, but we have on Passive House Plus, we have uh, galleries of online construction details. Of, like we've got the guts of about 200 buildings that we've published over the years, and they're like exemplar projects, new build and retrofit. And most of them have, uh, for the digital versions of them, most of them have links to galleries of of, of, of drawings, uh, including construction details um, on like we, we we have a project on our hands to kind of index them and and uh, and make them make them sort of searchable um but you've galleries you know for amazing different uh every every shape and size of building and uh and build method imaginable more or less you know 
uh yeah um so it's it's that kind of information it's it's you know i i feel like um it should be possible to uh to to uh to share that kind of information because um because there's i'm increasingly confident you know that we know what the right kinds of measures are and it's i'm not only talking about passive house and interface you know um uh i i i think uh that there, that's we have enough evidence now at this stage to be able to make some pretty confident uh uh, uh views on, or take take pretty confident views on, on on what the right things to do to buildings are you know uh, well, what I was going to say before, uh, just to d- jump back to that, was that Simon Jones, um, who we've never had on the podcast, actually, um, from he's now Ambisense, the uh, indoor air quality uh, uh, tech company, um, very interesting guy. And he, he's um, involved in the uh, International Energy Agency's Air Infiltration and Ventilation Center. He's got some fancy role there. I can't remember what it is, but um, uh, he's a great guy. And his thinking is always very interesting. But he, uh, a couple of years ago, when we were talking about designing the retrofit strategy in Ireland, one of the points that he talked about this goes back to how contractors, you know, you know the, their websites and how they market themselves and so on. Is that um, in Ireland, you know, the, the, uh, a lot of the construction activity now is happening on the big sites um, in the cities, like in Dublin mainly, you know, um, and uh, now that changes a bit over time, but um, it's it's in the kind of urban centres. So you've got lads, and it's nearly always men, of course, okay. uh, which is another issue, um, uh, who are coming up from all over the countryside. Um, from their own communities, driving up day in day out onto the big sites, working on these sites uh, as as employees. Um, and Simon saw great opportunity for these people uh, to be retrofitting in their local communities. You know, uh, so s- supporting growth and uh, regeneration uh, in 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 isolated communities, even around the country. Um, but you can't just introduce uh, grants for retrofit to make that happen. You've got to think uh, more in a more integrated way um about about this uh, and put different supports in place like you know specific sports supports to help these people uh you know courses on how to start a business how to do payroll um and uh, and 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 marketing and all of that kind of piece it it, it needs that overall vision you know uh uh some, somebody's got to be taking that uh you know at government level it's that interdepartmental view of all of the different strands that you need to pull together uh, to, to to make to make this work, you know. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And then I suppose if people coming into the industry for a start, they would also see that they're gaining all these additional skills along the way. And I, you just reminded me that we really need to um, kind of change the image of construction as well for younger people going in. You mentioned the gender issue, and um, it's still not. An appealing option for many people when I was working in a college, they were forever dealing with behavioural issues because it would be the option that was recommended by careers advisors if you were naughty or you had behavioural problems generally. And that's something, you know, it's not to say that it won't be good for those people, but it, it should be a sector that people aspire to. And there's well, so much that you can do with it. It's a really exciting place to be. A retrofit really could be an opportunity for people to get involved who maybe wouldn't necessarily have been involved or inspired to get into construction if they were only working on new high-rise buildings, for example. If they were working mm. with older buildings and refurbishing them, that could attract people in a different way. And um, yeah, I think we need a big push for that. And, and perhaps, you know, there's a huge push at the moment for data and AI, but maybe bringing that together, like here you can learn how to build a website, learn how to retrofit a house at the same time. Yeah, um, well, I think the bit that's missing from the way people understand what retrofit requires is it's not just 
putting up a brick wall, a skilled trade being a bricky, knowing how to do it right, uh, digging out foundations, also a skill. It's not just navvy work. However, when you get into a space like retrofit, you're talking building physics. And if you don't understand how the various different systems work independently and how they affect each other when they interact, well, you're on a hide into nothing. And that's the way you take what is perceived to be a blue-collar profession and turn it into a white-collar profession. And I think that's part of the problem with retrofit as a term, which I've not bollocked on about this for a long time, but it's a god-awful way of uh, describing the subject. It's much more complicated than that. It's much more potentially interesting. And that's changing that perception or first acknowledging what it actually requires. So like a good grasp of physics, numbers, materials, uh, it's all sorts of things. It's uh, physics and chemistry. And then if you want to get onto human health, how it affects biology, like you've got to be multidisciplinary to get it. That's how you change things. If you make people appreciate that it's much more STEM-based, but with a big human aspect rather than your tech bro STEM approach. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I, I would also argue that people training as brick layers as well, there's so much building physics involved in that. So it could be, you know, while we're training people who are involved in retrofit in this, then other people involved in construction can also learn because new build standards are, are escalating with the net zero strategy as well. So it, maybe there needs to be more building physics in every construction course. Um yeah, well, it was like the, the research that we got at the best. Like, if you teach the people why the windows are leaky uh, and how you ended up with leaky windows, you get fewer leaky windows because the people understand, oh, that's why I'm supposed to build it like this. Oh, right, yeah, cool. I want to do a good job. I will do a good job. Yeah, but it, but it requires um, uh, another element of this, uh, a, a government uh, strategy to get in, for instance, to schools, get in to kids uh, at a young enough age to to uh, to fill their minds with this stuff, you know, and to get them to, to, to I guess, you know, I, I mean, and like, I, as I've said before on the podcast, we've had, it's not sufficient in Ireland that we need more than this. But in Ireland, we've had for uh, for years, we've had construction studies as uh, as a subject and our equivalent of the A-levels, the Leaving Certificate. Um, and, the, and the curriculum has been amazing. Uh, the, the quality of the information on sustainable, sustainable buildings has been fantastic. But um, I know you don't even so you don't have construction studies as a subject in, in in secondary schools. You need to get there earlier than that than that though, and I, need, I think you need to find ways to kind of uh, uh, actively show um, uh, young people that uh, that there's opportunity here. You need to get into the. I know our environment minister Eamon Ryan. Um, I don't know how he got on with this actually, but I know he had a meeting a while ago with the school guidance councillors. You know, um, they seem like a really important kind of group to be reaching out to as well. Um, and uh, I just think, you know, that this 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 centralized thinking on this is lacking. Um, you know that 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 uh, it's, and it's not just government; it's it's societal level strategy that that that's kind of required. You know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and also, I guess while we're thinking about training, it's also the huge amount of people already working in the sector as well, yeah. and the need to upskill them and. And from what we've heard from builders, they're often learning on the job anyway and learning from others on the job. So that seems the natural way if in every area we can have projects that they can learn from others on and, and develop and that the knowledge can spread that way. Um, I think that would be really helpful. Do you think as well, I mean, if, um, from your research of talking to homeowners, um, I'm, I, 
I, I've seen some examples in the industry um, of uh, suppliers um, learning from other industries like retail in particular um, and, uh, you know, recognizing with retrofit the fact that, um, that you know, you're not working on a construction site per se, you're working in people's living rooms and, you know, um, and uh, and trying to have a very customer focused approach, uh, you know, uh, uh, that that kind of element, uh, uh, have you know, did, did that come up did, or was it was that did that feed into your research at all? That kind of thinking? It, it did. So, um, yeah, following householders through the process, there was all kinds of disruption in the home. And I think where it was anticipated and explained ahead and where things happened on time and as as they hoped they would there was much less disappointment where delays happened and mess that wasn't cleared up happened and unexpected things came about that's where the greatest amount of stress was because you couldn't prepare for it and I think my PhD supervisor compared it to going for an operation you know it's going to be disruptive and stressful but if everything happens as you expect it's much more you can be eased with it and feel like you know that's okay and it's maybe similar in the home like the home is our place of rest for most people it's a place of rest that's where we go to relax after a day um after work or like just you know it's our private space um and to interfere with that can be hugely disruptive so yeah some of the builders were really good and Things did happen on time. Things were able to happen on time. For some, there was unforeseen circumstances that came up where you couldn't blame the builder for things going going wrong. Um, but some really didn't seem to mind how much mess they left behind and the disruption. And I think more awareness in that. And I'm sure they do talk about that when they're training at college, but maybe some don't take it seriously. I, I don't know. But it, it, it's massively important when they're working in homes. Yeah, you wonder whether they ever get the feedback as well. And you wonder what the uh, the clients may have been like, because all of these, what you've alluded to there is one never, or it is rare that people think about the emotional impact of these very invasive measures and how one's behaviour affects another person's behaviour. Yeah, yeah. But um, if, if you treat them like pricks, why would they care? Are you treating them like a prick because you're having a bad day or you had unrealistic expectations? Some of the clients are just, I mean, uh, we've heard about some people who have clients who one person who was advised not to take on a job because the person was appalling to work for and would complain. And apparently she shut down the job a week before they could finish and then complained about the job never being finished. She denied entry, couldn't be completed, and just we tend to think she might have been more satisfied as a consequence. She had someone to complain about forever in her drafty yeah. home. People are diverse, aren't they? You never quite know what you're going to encounter. No. <laughs> I, I suppose the other thing that I haven't really touched on is most of my research has been with owner-occupied households. At the moment, I'm working in shelter housing, so it's a little bit different, but one of my PhD colleagues was looking at retrofit at the same time in social housing. And in that case, it's decisions made by others to things going into their home. And all of this disruption was not planned by them and sometimes happened on a day they didn't know about. So that's a whole other level of stress to uh, residents that we could easily manage with a bit of notice and information for them. 
absolutely. Perhaps we'll get you back on sometime to talk about more specifically about that. Because to be honest, we've not really, like I've got a load of things I wanted to talk about, which you wanted to talk about. The linking of health and retrofit, which we never got a chance to talk about and toxic no, technology. And actually, just this week, I was in the environmental research group. They're doing lots of, uh, they're coming from a health and chemistry background and they're doing air quality monitoring inside homes and measuring things that we've never measured before. We typically design buildings with CO2 in mind as a proxy for other pollutants, but there's so much going on in the building and the built environment. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more from them in an action project I've just started. Yeah, it's very important. It's a, it's a fascinating area and it's and it involves everything from the construction materials to the finishes to, you've heard of, I remember famous stories of of very Pain, painstakingly designed green buildings being tripped up by the wrong cleaning products being used, you know, or plug-in air fresheners. They're another absolute no-no, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Things that people don't commonly know about. And I suppose the other big, big thing that I was going to mention, I can mention briefly, is that, you know, as more and more people are being cared for at home and we're looking now at virtual wards, so hospital care might take place in the home environment more and more in the future. But an increasing older population the quality of our home environment is becoming more and more important. And if we can't afford to heat the home and you're recovering from an operation in that space, that could have huge consequences. So um, that yeah, gets that's... expensive very quickly for social care and the NHS. Yeah. Robbie said, uh, Robbie from DRES, once again, shout out Robbie. Uh, he talked about how they leave aftercare packages for their homes because if someone buys a cheap sofa, they're undermining the the health benefits of the the building that they've constructed for them just by introducing you know one rogue element yeah there's so many decisions to make and um yeah such little information in sort of on labels on products that we buy and bring into the home what impact will this have on my health what's the impact of manufacturing that so it's, it's almost impossible to negotiate at all um, all right. Regulators ban the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is it. But uh, then you take a William Morris approach, like, you know, beautiful craftsman furniture, craftsman delivered artisanal furniture for everyone that no one can afford. Like, you've got to have IKEA somewhere in the mix. I, th- oh, I think yeah. the other thing you need to take account of, as Ian Morris, again, another person we have to have on, as said, um, the ventilation expert, indoor air quality is about two things it's about source control and dilution. You know, um, and uh, you need to do both. So, so having a proper ventilation system in terms of dilution is critical. Um, and uh, you could do what you can to reduce reduce the sources of pollution, of course. Um, but you know, you can never legislate for exactly how people will live their lives in their homes. Um, you can't stand over their whole their shoulders, uh, stopping them from frying eggs or from 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 uh, making toast. You know, um, or from having candles or whatever it might be. You can give them advice, but you can certainly give them buildings that are more resilient to be able to withstand that kind of stuff do you know yeah all right so we are long as ever i'm gonna give up thinking it's gonna be an hour um well it's been lovely to have you on and we'll we'll definitely carry on this conversation and uh yeah next time you're in hastings at this this uh project uh we'll we'll meet up um yeah i'm keen thank you it, it's uh, been great and uh, i've learned a lot from you guys as well so thank you very much oh you're very flattering um <laughs> <laughs> that worries me now <laughs> um, alright so uh, we'll say goodbye thank you very much um, subscribe if you haven't uh, please review it like a written review five star review it makes a difference and we appear to be reaching more people so yeah please do it share it 
that's the big one. If you get something out of this, you probably know someone else who will. So uh, please do. And uh, join the ACB, join ACAN, subscribe Passive House Plus, advertise in it if you can. If you work in the sector, take a look. Uh, take a look at the website, Jeff's directory, blah, blah, blah. Uh, oh, there's something else. The consultancy. What is it? Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Get in touch about work. <laughs> <laughs> we do all sorts of stuff now. So hello. ZAP at EIUX.agency. All right. Thank you. Goodbye.